name is Amanda. And I'm Kristen. And, and we are the Extra Sisters. Sisters. So sit back, relax, and let's get creepy. Welcome to another Haunted Happy Hour. And in this happy hour, we're going to talk about unsolved mysteries. Which, you know, that could be anything from missing persons to I have a weird weather anomaly. You know, you just never mm-hmm. know. So that's kind of all-encompassing of just shit we don't know. You know, because it could be fucking aliens. Who knows? So <laughs> exactly. We're just going to kind of, as you know, this is a very unstructured format. If you don't know and this is your first time, hi, welcome. <laughs> Typically in these, we drink and we talk about spooky stuff and it's just very loosey-goosey, you know? So yes. well. Also, this year is kind of exciting for 2021. We're going to double up on the Haunted Happy Hours for you guys. There's going to be double the drinking, double the crazy talk at the end, probably about religion. Like, Listen, I don't just talk (laughs) about religion when I drink, but it is (laughs) high up on the triggers me when I drink thing. So, Yeah, I mean, they seem to do really well and actually got requests for more of them. So we decided to do two a month and see how that goes and see if we can keep up with that. Now that doubles my drinking on medicine. So we will see how if my liver can get through that. But so far, it hasn't seemed to have a problem with once a month. So twice a month should be totally fine. So good, good. yeah, I mean, it would be all right. Now, some of these you may have heard of. I did try to find things that weren't like you know. We've talked true crime before, so like we're yeah. gonna try not to talk about like like you mentioned before. We even start like John Benet Ramsey. Like you guys yeah. have your theories about that. Everyone knows about that. So and we've find- already mentioned her in another episode. Like it, it's getting tough to find new things. Yeah, and especially because there are so many podcasts, and there's even like BuzzFeed mm-hmm. Unsolved and things like that. So some of these you may have heard. Some of these you may have not heard i don't usually list a true crime podcasts or true crime things because exactly what i'm going to talk about when i talk about this i get way too fucking wrapped up in this (laughs) and it is unhealthy for me so that's why i stick to horror because it's fake and i can separate when it is unsolved mysteries and murders and stuff like that I just like will stay up all night, watch all the documentaries like this research. I only did four things and only like two of them. Really, one of them is a missing persons case. And just that one case I watched documentary and like that one thing took me like an hour and a half because I just couldn't (laughs) stop like going down the rabbit hole. You know what I mean? I I get it, man. I get it. Yeah. I just can't. I'm watching CCTV footage. It's bad. So Yeah, that's why I don't fucking do true crime because I just can't separate. But so this one actually, though, is not true crime related. It is kind of this weird anomaly that happened in 1994. And it it just I don't know. It's weird. I'm going to see what you think after this, but it's kind of spooky. All right. I'm excited. On August 7th, 1994, in Oakville, Washington, at 3 a.m., rain began to fall, blanketing a 20 square mile radius. Though it's Washington and, like, it rains all the time, that's not a big deal. People noted that it wasn't water, but it was a strange gelatinous substance they had never seen before. Just falling from the sky. Just no big deal. Gross. Over a period of three weeks, it fell six times. Six times in three weeks. This jelly from the sky. I would fucking... Anyway. That's so gross. (laughs) At the time it first began, Officer David Lacey was on patrol with a civilian friend. When he turned his windshield wipers on, they smeared it against the windshield instead of washing it off. The obscured windshield forced him to pull into a gas station and try to clean it off manually. And having he had a pair of latex gloves on for safety, and he described it as being mushy, almost like it had you had jello on your hand. Another resident named Dottie Heron stepped outside after it had stopped and noticed it was everywhere. At first it looked like hailstones, but when she touched it, she noticed that it had a very that odd gelatinous texture by the afternoon that day david Dottie, and other residents had become very mysteriously and violently ill they described having difficulty breathing extreme vertigo blurred vision and an increasing sense of nausea beverly roberts another resident said that everyone in town contracted a flu-like illness that lasted two to three months Additionally, several cats and dogs that came into contact with the substance fell ill and died. Oh, my God. Yeah. An hour after first noticing her symptoms, Dottie was found sprawled out on her bathroom floor, conscious but very weak. 
Her daughter, Sunny, described her as feeling cold and sweat-drenched and looking pale. She was moved to the hospital where she stayed for three days and was diagnosed with a severe inner ear infection. As she was being moved there, Sunny remembered the odd rain, thinking there might be a connection to Dottie's illness, collected a sample, and sent it to the hospital. A lab tech examined it and found it contained human white blood cells, but couldn't identify what it was or how it came from the sky. The sample was then sent to Washington State Department of Health for further study. Mike McDowell, a microbiologist at the department, noted that it was teeming with two species of bacteria, one of which lives in the human digestive system. Because of Mike's findings, it was initially speculated to be human waste from an airplane, but the Federal Aviation Administration regulations require that to be dyed blue, but this was perfectly clear. Other regulations forbid pilots from releasing the blue ice in mid-flight, so they can't just, like, dump shit in your yard, which makes sense. (laughs) Right. Nearly a year after Dottie fell ill, she mailed a sample she had stored in her freezer to Amtest Laboratories, a private research lab. There, while analyzing it, Tim Davis, another microbiologist, believed he saw a specific type of cell, a complex nucleus-containing cell that is present in most living creatures. This meant it was or had been alive. One theory as to its origins was that it was one of the military's naval bombing runs at sea had accidentally destroyed a school of jellyfish and sent their pieces flying into the atmosphere where they settled in Oakville, Oakville, 50 miles inland. Oh my God. Yeah. The distance the parts would have traveled, the number of times it fell, and the lack of any rotting smell, though, put this theory to doubt to most residents. Because remember, it happened over three weeks. Yeah. It's not just like one time, you know. Right. While the Air Force confirmed that they were doing practice bombing runs over the Pacific Ocean in August of 1994, they deny knowing of the substance or any involvement in creating or dispersing it, which like Oh, I'm sure I was about to say like it. they would, yeah. <laughs> Oakville residents are skeptical of this, which yeah, fair. Prior to yeah, right. it, many noticed a significant almost daily amount of slow-moving military aircraft in the skies above. Some believe Oakville was the site of a military experiment designed to test a new biological weapon or to test possible damage a biological attack on U.S. soil could do. But no samples of the substance exist today. That's gross. I would immediately blame military (laughs) personally. Yeah, absolutely. It's their fucking fault. We we live in Colorado Springs, and just south of Colorado Springs, there is a little town, and their water has been contaminated by Fort Carson. And mm-hmm. Peterson, even the military bases here, that they can't even drink it mm-hmm. or not be able to, but they pretty much almost every single household down there has to get the giant fucking gallons of water because of the yes. military. They can't even drink the water. So it wouldn't surprise me. And, and they've, the military's been like, I think, sued for that. So, or there's been some sort of lawsuit involved. Yeah. It would not surprise me. And the fact that it was alive, though, like, yeah, the military is more likely, but isn't it more fun to go aliens? Like, (laughs) right, exactly. In this specific little town, that's spooky as shit. And like, I would immediately move. Like, I know you can't just up and move. Like, well, I'm finding out that you can, apparently, as long as you live in your house for more than two years. But, (laughs) because I did, but, you know, like, I don't know. And also, the fact that you can just touch something and then not know what's going to make you just like violently ill and kill your pet. Yeah, that's creepy. Falls from the sky because you don't think about it. You just go outside and touch something that fell from the sky. Like what? Yeah. And also vertigo is my worst nightmare. That's literally one of my biggest fears. Just throwing that out there. Having vertigo? Yeah. Like cause really? I get dizzy a lot and I'm just like yeah. convinced I'm going to just end up with like vertigo later in life. It's just like one of my biggest fears. That's all. Ah. Throwing that out there. I'm just like, got it. So just sounds terrible. Yeah, agreed. That does sound fucking terrible. Yeah. And also there's like if you Google like Oakville blobs, mm-hmm. there's, you know, they have all these there's pictures. I wanna see pictures. Well, I kind of I don't know though. Yeah, there's pictures, and I don't know if they're real pictures, but I, th- I, it's the same picture that comes up a couple different times, and it literally looks like 
like fish eggs kind of yeah or like you know if you were to take like a a kind of opaque jellyfish and like slice it up and throw it in a lawn mm-hmm. so yeah fucking wack Gross. i know i wonder what it actually is military i had white blood cells in it from humans like who oh, knows god what if it's like aborted babies or something it sounds like a human experiment or like yeah. a biological experiment like stem yeah cells like they're just throwing them out yeah. like they're trying to create something and they throw out all the bad ones yeah, yeah. gross all right mine are shorter so i'm going to throw in a couple in between each of amanda's so the first one i have is the voynich manuscript Voynich Manuscript is roughly a 250-page book written in an entirely unknown language slash writing system. It's been carbon dated back to the 1400s and includes illustrations of plants that don't resemble any known species. It's named for the Polish book dealer who purchased it in 1912. It is believed to have been intended as a medical text. Its first confirmed owner was George Baresh, an alchemist from Prague who discovered it taking up space uselessly in his library, quote-unquote. Barish tried to investigate the manuscript's origins to no avail. The manuscript changed hands for centuries until it was purchased by Voynich, who posited that it was authored by Albertus Magnus, who was an alchemist, or Roger Bacon, an early scientist. However, some believe that Voynich fabricated the manuscript and its history all by himself. Various other hoaxes have been proposed over the years. Of course, that wouldn't explain the carbon dating of the paper and ink. Centuries after its first alleged discovery, the Voynich manuscript remains an impenetrable and inexplicable as ever. And I did talk to Connor about this because he's a science-y kind of guy, and he said that they have actually figured out how to read it now. So it's a little less mysterious. We know how to read it now, but it's still kind of a weird book that we have no idea where it came from or what it means. Humans blow my mind. You are telling yeah. me that they found a book that has no language origins and people still figured out how to read it. How to read it. Yep. I mean, I'm sure it has to have some sort of like, you know how like certain words come from Latin. So maybe it had like yeah. similar, you know, vernacular or something like that. But I don't know if that was a correct use of that term or not. But <laughs> what I mean. no, no, I get you. Like the same root-ish words. So yeah, yeah, they probably found one and were able to match the rest. But if this is somebody's made-up language, like especially twins make up their own languages all the time. And people don't aren't really able to figure those out. So it's interesting. Yeah, how? How did because I'm assuming this is somebody's made-up language. Somebody wrote their own book, made their own stuff, had fun with it. How the fuck did you read it? Just did their own thing. Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of cool, though. And the plant thing. Yeah. Maybe they just, you know, they they picked up a plant they shouldn't have and ate it and got really fucking high or something. Right. Exactly. Some fucked up plants. Exactly. That's really weird though yeah it's it's an unsolved mystery like i don't even know if there's anything scary about it but it is weird we got this weird book we don't know where it comes from and yeah about weird plants i think that anything that we inherently don't know the answer or we don't know the answer to is inherently scary like it doesn't matter if it's harmless and if somebody was just writing gibberish and drew a fucking because people are creative they can they come up with things all the time that don't exist Mm -hmm. they've just been drawing pictures but just the fact that we don't know and it's so old, we're like, exactly, you know, exactly, exactly. And my second one is the Overton Bridge near Dumberton seems to call dogs to leap to their death. So this oh, is in Scotland. Please. Oh, no. uh, yeah. <laughs> A perfect spot for unsolved mysteries. Since the early 1960s, some 50 canines have perished and hundreds more have jumped but survived, with some returning for a second leap onto the jagged rocks 50 feet below. The Scottish Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals has sent representatives to investigate but to no avail. In terms of scientific truth, it is debatable, if not incredibly unlikely, that dogs are capable of forming an intent to die. Yet, something is luring dogs off that bridge, often from the very same spot, and always on sunny, dry days. Many theories have arisen, including that the bridge is haunted. This was a popular theory after a local man threw his baby son to his death from the bridge in 1994. They also think maybe a mink is marking the area with an almost irresistible scent. A sound anomaly exists at the bridge that only dogs can hear. 
Whatever is causing this phenomenon, dog owners would be wise to take heed and keep their dogs on leashes. Uh, yeah, if somebody even said, hey, there's this like weird smell that dogs don't like, I wouldn't even walk my dog there. But the fact that right. they're dying, like, I wouldn't have. Yeah. No. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I thought you'd be very upset about that one. Don't take Izzy to Scotland. No. I don't think <laughs> you can get on a plane since she's a pug. I don't think they physically let That's them. true. <laughs> Sorry, baby, no travel for you. <laughs> you might die up there. Yeah. So the next one is the Circleville letters. In 1976, several Circleville, Ohio residents began receiving strange letters detailing personal information about their lives. Bus driver Mary Gillespie was accused of a supposedly non-existent affair with the superintendent of schools. The writer told Mary that he or she had been observing her house and knew she had children. It was postmarked Columbus, Ohio, but had no return address. Within eight days, Mary received a similar letter. She kept the letters to herself until her husband Ron received one as well. The letter stated that if Ron did not stop his wife's affair, his life would be in danger. After two weeks, the writer threatened to go public with the affair allegations, broadcasting it on TV, CB radios, and billboards. Okay, first of all, real quick. Mm-hmm. Who is so obsessed with somebody else's affair, they're going to buy a billboard about it? But Unless they're a part of the affair, like the spouse or something. I agree. Like, we're what gonna, the fuck? I'm going to get into some theories, because, again, unsolved. <laughs> Mary and Ron only had three, only told three people about the letters. Ron's sister, her husband, Paul, and Paul's sister. Mary had some ideas about who might be sending the letters. They decided to have Paul write letters to the suspect claiming that they know who they were. The plan seemed to work. The letters stopped for several weeks. I also want to know how they got the letters to that person with no return address, but that's just my own personal <laughs> That changed on August 19, 1977, when Ron received a phone call from the writer. The call seemed to confirm Ron's suspicion on the identity of the writer. He grabbed his gun and left in his pickup truck, even though the writer claimed to be watching the truck. Just a few minutes later, Ron was found dead in his truck, crashed into a tree. Investigators later learned that Ron had fired at least one shot from his gun before the crash. Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe questioned and eliminated at least one suspect in the case. He then ruled Ron's death an accident, claiming that he had lost control and crashed while driving drunk. However, several residents soon received letters stating that Sheriff Radcliffe had been involved in a cover-up. According to Paul, Sheriff Radcliffe initially agreed that the death was a result of foul play. However, he allegedly changed his mind when the suspect passed a polygraph test. Ron's blood alcohol was 0.16, which was twice the legal limit. However, many of Ron's friends and family were surprised by this as they did not think of him as a drinker. Mary and the superintendent later acknowledged they did have a relationship, although they claim it did not start until after the letters were sent. Which, what? Yeah, they're like, okay, we we weren't fucking, but then like we decided to after the letters were like, y'all make a good couple. Right, exactly. They're like, this sounds perfect. I want you. In February of 1983, Mary was harassed along her bus route. The letter writer apparently began placing threatening signs next to the road. One day, Mary had had enough and decided to go and rip the sign down. When she did, she discovered it had been booby-trapped and designed to kill her. Oh, my God. The trap had a box which contained a small pistol. If Mary pulled the sign off a certain way, the gun would have fired. But luckily, it was put together in an amateur way. And it did not go off. They also tried to rub the serial number off the gun, but that was unsuccessful. And the lab tests were able to raise the number. I feel like there's easier ways to just get rid of her. (laughs) No kidding, right? They want to make a scene, I guess. Right? It was determined that the gun belonged to Paul, who had recently separated from Ron's sister. Paul, however, claimed that the gun had been stolen. On February 25th, 1983, Sheriff Radcliffe asked Paul to meet with him and take a handwriting test. He asked Paul to try and copy the handwriting from the letters. Sheriff Radcliffe also had him write letters while repeating them verbally. After the test, Paul took Sheriff Radcliffe to his garage and showed him where he kept his gun. Afterwards, the two returned to the courthouse where Paul was arrested and charged with attempted murder. On October 24th, 1983, he went on trial for the attempted murder of Mary Gillespie. 
Although he was never charged with writing the threatening letters, they became a crucial part of the evidence against him. A handwriting expert testified that Paul was the letter writer. Mary also testified that she believed that he was the writer after his wife visited her with the same suspicion. Paul's boss also testified that he was not at work on the day the booby trap was found. Paul did have an alibi most of the day, however. He never took the stand in his defense. Like, why? You're like, no, like, I had an alibi, but it's fine. Right, it's okay. You can be afraid of me and think I'm the killer. Proclaiming his innocence, he was convicted and was given a 7 to 24 year sentence. While there, he himself received letters from the writer, determined to keep him there. Others still received letters postmarked from Columbus, even though he was in prison in Lima. Even though he was in solitary confinement, letters kept arriving. In December 1990, Paul became eligible eligible for parole. He was denied due to letters, even though there was no way he could be sending them. In May 1994, Paul was paroled, and he continues to maintain his innocence. However, the author of the letters has never been solved. There are some theories that make up this case. One is that Mary had a coworker that pursued her, but since she actually did start a relationship with a superintendent prior to when she said she did, and he was pissed by that, so he started writing the letters. And Ron knew it was him and one day finally had enough liquid courage to confront him, but did have a true car accident. But that does not account for the gunshot being fired or where the bullet went. Another theory suggests that Paul's ex-wife set the traps to frame Paul as the writer as Paul got both the house and the kids in the divorce. So she was bitter. She was even still spreading negative stories and planting things about Paul into the 1990s, even when he was in jail. Karen's car and boyfriend had also been observed near a crime scene. She also asked Paul's sister if she could borrow a typewriter, which was very out of character for her as no one knew her to be a writer, but she was claiming to be writing a book, which she never did. Yeah. Which it seems like a lot of people were really sloppy. Like you're going to deny him writing the letters, but the letters aren't coming from, I guess they could say he was orchestrating them from somewhere else, but you're not going to go and like figure out who his partner is or question him about a partner when he's clearly not writing letters because you have him in solitary confinement. Like y'all are just fine. Right. Right. Somebody's dead. (laughs) Yes. Y'all are just fine with having the wrong dude in prison. Okay. Whatever. I mean, most people are. That's cool true. With it. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, that's all I got for that one. All right. My next one. Where are the solder children? Oh, I know this one. Sorry. <laughs> because I was actually watching Christmas true crime cases while I was making Christmas cookies. Oh, my God. <laughs> George and Jenny Sauter of West Virginia were forced to cope not only with the immeasurable loss of their children, but also with the mysterious circumstances surrounding that loss. After the Sauter home burned to the ground on the night before Christmas in 1945, five of the ten Sauter children were still alive and accounted for. But what about the other five? From all accounts, it would seem that they had vanished into thin air. Notice how we don't say vanished into smoke. That's because in the ruins of the fire, zero physical evidence of the children could be found, which is virtually impossible from a scientific standpoint. But that wasn't all that smelled off about the events of that night. Apparently, George tried to save the children, who he believed were still trapped inside, by using his coal truck, which, strangely, was inoperable. The phone lines to the house were found to have been cut. A woman claimed to have seen all five missing children peering from a passing car while the fire was in progress. And a woman at a Clarkston hotel who saw the children's photos in a newspaper said she had seen four of the five a week after the fire. She said the children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of the Italian extraction, she said in a statement. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and wouldn't allow it. The Sauter family theorized that the children had been kidnapped, perhaps in an attempt to extort money, perhaps to coerce George into joining the local mafia. The Sauters were Italian immigrants, or perhaps in retaliation for George's outspoken criticism of Mussolini and Italy's fascist government. From the 1950s until Jenny Sauter's death in the late 1980s, the Sauter family maintained a billboard on the State Route 16, 
with pictures of the five vanished children and offering a reward for information. The last known surviving Sauter child, Sylvia, 69, still does not believe her siblings perished in the fire. Yeah, I mean, they fucking, like, you can, even when things burn, you find, like, bones and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, like, they did experiments. Like, the mom did, like, would burn animal bones to see if there would be anything left. And there were. Like, she fucking mm-hmm. knows. She knows that her kids, somebody fucking took them. Yeah. And set their fucking really house sad. on fire. On Christmas. That's so sad. I read a fucking comment on something. And it was like, well, it's a good thing she had a bunch of kids. And I was like, that? Wow. Was- yeah. Just... That is one of the worst things I have ever. People are terrible. And that's, I don't really have anything to add to that. But like, God. I don't like a child is irreplaceable, whether you have 10, 20, if they're still your child. I I could have like 18 dogs and like. That's exactly my point. Yeah. Like, I have five cats and they still mean everything to me. Like, I wouldn't have one that I want replaced or something. That's ridiculous. Like, oh, well, good thing I got another one. Like, fuck you. God. But yeah, no, I totally like there are a couple, like you said, a couple theories on that as well. But like, yeah, somebody took her kids. The fire department would have found at least one of their remains and at least one. Yeah, exactly. They didn't find anything in it. And the fact that the phone lines were cut and shit like that. No. Somebody was trying to kill and steal. Yes. No. All right. My next one. What really happened to young Walter Collins? In 2008, Clint Eastwood's film Changeling reawakened interest in one of the most bizarre and tragic crime stories of the 1920s, which it also awakened in me, by the way. Single mom Christine Collins reported that her nine-year-old son, Walter, missing in March 1928 from their home in L.A., Five months later, the police brought Walter back to Christine, except it wasn't Walter, and Christine knew it, but the L.A. police dismissed Christine's concerns, going so far as to accuse her of terrible mothering and having her committed to a mental hospital. The real Walter Collins was never found, and over time, authorities came to believe he was one of the victims of convicted child murderer Gordon Stewart Northcott, although Northcott's mother offered a confession for killing Walter, which that's the weird part to me, so... I'll, I'll finish the story, actually, and then I'll back up. Whatever happened to Walter Collins, his body was never found, and no one ever learned what really happened. Nor has it been established with any certainty why the police were so invested in covering up the boy's disappearance that they brought a different child back to Christine and tried to convince her and the rest of the world that it was Walter. Mm. Now, the police thing aside, like, that's really fucked up. I agree. There was something going on. Like, I don't know what happened to her actual son, if he was hit by a police car or something, but something fucking happened. But they, the Northcott thing is interesting. So that man aside is a serial killer. And they think that what he would do is he, especially in the 1920s, there were a lot of boys around that needed work, like young boys, like nine to 12-ish. And he would kidnap them and he would torture them, rape them. And he buried them in a chicken coop on the farm. There are so many bodies there. Probably not anymore. There were so many bodies there. He killed a lot of people as a serial killer. And they never found Walter's body there either. It just so happened that he was working around the same time when this boy disappeared. But I actually, because you guys know I'm interested in serial killers, I found much more interest in the Northcott part of it. But it's still the fact that Walter is missing. And the cops brought another boy. That's so fucking weird. Yeah, see, that's some dirty shit right there. Yeah. They fucking knew. You don't just fuck up, fuck that up. That was intentional. Yeah. And then you also don't commit a woman for saying, this is not my child. You're like, yeah. oh, shit, then whose kid is this? You keep looking. Right, exactly. And it's her only son. She's gonna fucking know it's not her kid. Believe mothers. Yeah, like, plus, like, how old was the kid? Like, come on. You Nine, know? yeah. Yeah, they don't change. Like, yeah. you know what your fucking kid looks like after nine years. Like, good lord. Exactly. What a messy... They did... The cops... They fucked I agree. They did something. Time, yeah. And they... Or they were just tired of dealing with it. Or they had a kid. Maybe... Mm-hmm. I'll... 
I don't like to give credit here, but maybe they were like, well, this kid kind of looks like him and he really needs a home, but fuck that. Right. But I agree with you. Back in the 1920s, even if they didn't have anything to do with it, they were probably tired of hearing her bitching and they were like, here's a kid. Deal with it. Woman. Kid needs a home and you need a kid. Here you go. Yeah. Looks close enough. And you're just a woman that I'm tired of hearing cry. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Your turn. The Disappearance of Trevor Dealey. This is the one I was watching, like, CCTV footage and stuff. Even though there's not a ton with this case. There's really not. But it's, like, even the most simple missing persons cases are just so, like, crazy, you know? Mm -hmm. Trevor Dealey was an ambitious, successful 22-year-old IT professional at the Bank of Ireland at the time of his disappearance in December of 2000. Trevor was the youngest of four children from Kildare, Ireland, and was described by all his friends and family as kind, trustworthy, and an all-around good guy. On Thursday, December 7th, 2000, the Bank of Ireland asset management employees got together for their annual holiday party. The evening started for drinks at one place, but by the end of the night, ended up at a nightclub close to where Trevor stayed until about 3.30 a.m. So, started at a pub, ended up at a club. It was a stormy night, windy and raining, and the cabs in the city were all on strike. So Trevor had no choice but to walk. Oh, no. From the club, Trevor walked to his office building, which was open 24-7. Trevor arrived at his office security gate at 3.35 a.m., and he was not alone at the gate. Before Trevor even arrived back at his office, CCTV footage showed a man in all black clothing standing in front of the gate of the Bank of Ireland Asset Management starting at about 2.59 a.m. Again, it is windy, raining, and this man was standing at the gate with no umbrella, nothing, like no business being there, just chilling. He had a few exchanges with other people that walked by, but they were seemingly insignificant. When Trevor arrived, Trevor and the man spoke briefly before Trevor entered the office. Trevor went inside, checked his email for some reason at 3.30 in the morning, spoke with a co-worker, and came back outside at 4.02 a.m. This time, he had an umbrella in hand that he took from his office. CCTV footage captures him turning onto the street and walking away from the building alone, initially. At 4.06 a.m., He calls his best friend. He says, hi, Glenn. I've missed you there. Just on my way home. All going good. I'll talk to you tomorrow. At 4.15 a.m., Trevor is seen for the last time on the closed circuit television. Just a few moments later, a man in dark clothing is seen walking the same path behind him, half running, half walking. It is the same man that was at the gate and that Trevor had a brief interaction with. After a few days of no one hearing from Trevor, his colleagues and friends and family's concern grew to panic as they knew this was out of character and no one had even like gotten a call from him in days. There were several initial theories. He was originally slightly intoxicated and there were several minor, major waterways on his way home. Maybe he drowned. But that was quickly debunked when they searched the rivers and canals, even draining some areas of water with absolutely no trace. He had recently gone to Alaska to meet a woman, and there was also a theory that something either did not go well and he committed suicide, also unlikely, as there would be some trace, like somebody doesn't just kill themselves and nobody ever find their body or something, right? Mm -hmm. Or it went really well and he ran off to Alaska. But his family quickly dismissed this as even if there was a woman involved in his life, he would communicate with them as they were all really close. Like he told them when he was going to meet her, like there was no Mm -hmm. reason for him to just run off with this woman and never disclose that. His family even traveled to Alaska to see if there were any answers there and none turned up. The main theory to this day is that Trevor was a victim of foul play. In 2017, authorities received a tip that Dealey was threatened at gunpoint and the gun was intended to just scare him, but it accidentally discharged and killed him and his body was then dumped into a drain. This tip came from and blamed an organized crime ring, specifically one involved in gang, drug dealing and prostitution activity. After a thorough search of the tipped-off area, no remains were found. And at the time, in 2017 and into 2018, 
this tip was not seen as very credible. Until just in 2019, when a new witness came forward that confirmed that Trevor had come into contact with a a well-known criminal and was accidentally shot after a confrontation. Still to this day, 20 years later, there is not a single trace of Trevor. There were the theories I stated above, the drowning, the moving to Alaska. Most people think he was murdered and was targeted either because, although he was 6'3", he was still slender, so not difficult to take down from behind. He worked for the bank, and that man was standing outside the bank for a long time in the middle of the night, a -a 24-hour-a-day bank, and he was just waiting. And Mm -hmm. when someone walked in and then back out, he followed them, which is suspicious, Mm -hmm. especially if organized crime was involved. He may have threatened him to go back to the bank to get info, to get access, or something like that. When I was looking into this, the family is still searching for him. They are, it's been 20 years in December. Yeah, that's so sad. He should be 42 now. Yeah. That's so sad. And they have, you know, those age progression, progression photos of what he would look like. They still are searching. Now, it was interesting because when I was researching this case, the there was a YouTube channel, a true crime YouTube channel that did this in 2018 that talked about this. And they were like, that tip in 2017 about him being shot, not credible. But then after that came out, this new tip in 2019. So basically what happened was what I was reading, they started letting them put up posters and things in the prisons. And so that criminals could basically rat on other criminals. Mm-hmm. And when someone saw that poster specifically, they came, another person came forward and basically corroborated the same story that he was accidentally shot after basically being roughed up about something and then dumped into a drain. But there's still Sad. no trace of him at all and the creepy thing is like it's sad you see him walk away from the bank and the it's just black and white cctv footage and then you just see that man that you see there's cctv footage of him outside the gate talking to trevor and then you also see him just like you know that brisk run walk thing we do Mm -hmm. right after him like not even 30 seconds later that's so fucking and they never found that man like, 22, what, he just graduated from college, he's just getting ready to start his life. That's sad. Yeah, exactly. And that's, it's just, yeah. Right, th- those kind of cases. I have actually one to talk about at the end of this that is not part of really what I was talking about, but it's kind of a personal, I guess, thing, not personal to me but i'll get there but you go and then i have one more and then i have a last thing to end on but go ahead okay all right my last two i everyone i feel like knows the story but i had to because i'm a history buff so the lost colony of roanoke in 1587 john white led a group of people from britain to found an english colony settling on roanoke island one of a chain of barrier islands now known as the outer banks of north carolina White left for more supplies, but on his return three years later, found the colony meticulously abandoned, with all houses and fortifications dismantled with care. Before he'd left the colony, White had instructed the colonists that if they were taken by force, they were to carve a cross into a nearby tree. But there was no cross. The only clue was the word Croatoan, the name of a native tribe allied with the English, which was carved into a post. White took this to mean that the colonists had moved to Croatoan Island, now known as Hatteras. Ensuing investigations turned up claims that the colonists had been slaughtered by the Powhatan tribe. But there is no archaeological evidence of this, and a recent re-examination of the primary sources indicates that any massacre that occurred was not this particular group of colonists, but rather a group of colonists who had arrived earlier. More endearing theories involve integration between the colonists and the Croatoans or other local tribes, but so far no DNA evidence has positively identified any descendants of the colony. So that's a typical one that I'm sure most people know about the lost colony of Roanoke, but I always like to add it in. Aliens. Exactly. Like that is one of the like big mysteries of the, of our, like of the United States, you know? Yeah. And I know AHS did a thing about it, but they didn't really do a thing about it. But still, like, spooky. 
Yeah. And it's it was interesting to me because that's the first time I knew that it didn't look like they had been slaughtered or anything. I didn't realize that the houses and fortifications were dismantled with care. I didn't really like just set aside perfectly. That's interesting to me. Yeah, that's one of those things where it's like you hope when the af- if there is some sort of afterlife, you just like know everything, you know? Yes, <laughs> like, exactly. It's got to drive like, I know it drives us as a general public crazy, but then like we just like move on with our lives. But there's like some people that's like what they study and it just has to drive them fucking yes. crazy all the fucking time. Yeah, there are people that there's li- their life's work is, you know, the lost colony of Roanoke and they're never going to know. That's so sad. Yeah, I mean, at this point, if we don't know, we're not going to know. Right, exactly. It's so sad. Unless the aliens come down and tell us. Yeah, please All do. Right. <laughs> All right, and the last Undersolved Mystery that I grabbed, I wanted to grab something a little closer to home. So this one is actually from Colorado. It is up by the Coors Bottling Plant, if anybody knows where that is, which is around Golden, Colorado. But actually, this was in the 40s, so I don't know if it's moved. So give me the benefit of the doubt. All right. Harold Murph Cohen. On November 7th, 1949, Harold Murph Cohen's body was found in Blue Lake near the Coors bottling plant. Swimming with the fishes, you see. Two boys discovered his badly decomposed corpse, which officials surmised had been sunk using clothesline and steel cord attached to heavy iron and stone weights. It was concluded that he was still alive when associates of restauranteurs and alleged gangsters Eugene Checkers uh, Smaldone and Clyde Flipflop Smaldone tossed him in. There are no new leads to this case. This this is why I added it. The Smaldoon's restaurant, Giatno's Italian to Die For, continues to operate having even boasted on its website in recent years of the brothers' involvement in several murder inquiries throughout the past. Can we just shut that restaurant down? <laughs> it needs to be gone. We're done. Like, that is fucked up. You're you're cool with the fact that they're gangsters and not even, like, saying, hey, they're gangsters, but you're like, oh, they also killed people, lots of them, and put it on your website? Uh, I mean, people like, people like stuff. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's kind of sad that they killed this poor guy in 1949 and left his body to fucking float there and they still have a goddamn restaurant that's paying for their grandkids and shit. A good one, it seems like. I guess yeah. the mob. Yay. Well, you know, people, I guess, spend the night in murder houses for funsies, which, you know, I guess... <laughs> Different strokes for different folks. <laughs> I, I, I'm actually not opposed to the people that go there that have that weird morbid curiosity. I'm actually more upset with the restaurant throwing it on there. Like, oh, yeah. I would, I'd be okay with a thing going, hey, these were local gangsters and leaving it at that. But then also talking about their involvement, their involvement in several murder cases. Oh, yeah. So, okay. so you're, you're trying to get people who enjoy murder and gangsters to come to you. You couldn't just leave it at the one. You also have to, like... I mean, this was in Colorado. This is a local restaurant. That means Harold Murph Cohen's family is probably going, yeah, you motherfuckers. You killed my uncle, cousin, whatever. Like, that's fucked yeah, up. That's true. That's it. That's my last one. That That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you that. Okay. So my last story that I was looking up before I get into one that is no longer an unsolved mystery, but actually was for years of my young adult life in the community that I lived in. So I wanted to talk about that a little bit before it was actually solved. But just because I have kind of was not personally attached to it. But you know, when it happens in your community, you're kind of, you know, but yeah, the mystery of the missing keepers of the Flannan Isles Lighthouse. In December 1900, a boat called Hesperus I think. Well, that's what we're going to call it. Set sail for the island of Eileen Moore, one of the seven islets, also known as the seven hunters of the Flannan Isles off the coast of northwestern Scotland. Captain James Harvey was tasked with delivering a relief lighthouse keeper as part of a regular rotation. The journey was delayed a few days by bad weather, and when Harvey and his crew finally arrived, it was clear that something was awry. None of the normal preparations at the landing dock had been made. The flagstaff was bare, and none of the keepers came to greet the ship the keepers as it turned out weren't on the island at all all three of them had vanished 
This island was peculiar. The island's only permanent residents were sheep, and herders referred to it as the other country, believing it was to be a place touched by something paranormal. It had long elicited a sort of fearful reverence by its visitors. The main draw to the remote location was a chapel built in the 7th century by St. Flannan. Even those who never prayed were moved to worship while on this island. Superstitions and rituals like circling the church's ruins on your knees were adopted by those passing through, and many considered it to have an indefinable aura that could not be ignored. What the ship's crew did find at the lighthouse was a set of perplexing clues. The replacement keeper, Joseph Moore, was the first to investigate and reported all of the, an all-encompassing sense of dread as he ascended the cliff towards the newly constructed lighthouse. Inside, the kitchen table contained plates of meat, potatoes, and pickles. The clock had stopped, and there was an overturned chair nearby. The lamp was ready for lighting, and two of the three oilskin coats belonging to Thomas Marshall, James Ducat, and Donald MacArthur were gone. The gate and door were firmly shut. These clues only led to more questions. Why would one of the keepers have gone out without his coat? And for that matter, why would all three have left together when rules forbid it? Someone needed to man the post at all times, so something unusual must have drawn them out. When Moore returned with his report, Harvey had the island search. The hunt came up empty. The captain then sent a telegram to the mainland. It read, a dreadful accident has happened at the Flannans. The three keepers, Ducat, Marshall, and the occasional have disappeared from the island. On our arrival there this afternoon, no sign of life was seen on the island. Fired a rocket, but as no response was made, managed to land more, who went up to the station but found no keepers there. The clocks were stopped, and other signs indicated that the accident must have happened about a week ago. Poor fellows, they must have blown over the cliffs or drowned trying to secure a crane or something like that. Night coming on, we could not wait to make something as of their fate. I have left Moore and MacDonald, Bowie Master, and two seamen on the island to keep the light burning until you make other arrangements. We'll not return to Oban until I hear from you. I have repeated this wire to Moorhead in case you are not home. I will remain at the telegraph office tonight until it closes if you wish to wire me. Further investigation also led nowhere, though the lighthouse log book provided a new set of confounding details. On December 12th, an entry from Marshall described severe winds, the likes of which I have never seen before in 20 years. He wrote that Ducat had been quiet and MacArthur had been crying, which would have been odd behavior for a man with a reputation as tough and experienced as that seafarer. The next day, Marshall reported more storm details and wrote that all three of them had been praying, another odd bit of behavior from well-seasoned keepers in a brand new safe lighthouse. Strangest of all, there were no reported storms in the area on December 12th, 13th, or 14th. All should have been calm up until December 17th. The last report in the book from December 15th read, Storm ended, sea calm. God is over all. So speculation ran wild. Was it supernatural, sea creatures, madness, murder, a government operation, foreign spies, aliens? Ultimately, it was evidence outside the lighthouse that provided the most promising lead in explaining what had become of the three keepers. Over at the western landing platform, damage from the recent storms reached as high as 200 feet above sea level. Ropes that were usually affixed to a crate on a supply crane were littered about. And somebody wrote in a newspaper, I am of the opinion that the most likely explanation of this disappearance of men is that they had all gone down on the afternoon of Saturday, the 15th of December, to the proximity of the West Landings to the cure a box of mooring ropes, and that an unexpectedly large roller had come up on the island and a large body of water going up higher and higher than they were and coming down upon a hill had swept them away with force. While this seems possible, the explanation left considerable room for doubt. The lack of bodies, supposedly calm conditions, and experience of know-how of the lighthouse keepers still hadn't been accounted for and never would be. In the years following, other keepers claimed to hear voices in the air screaming out names of Marshall, Ducat, and MacArthur. Hmm. I haven't Spooky. seen the lighthouse yet, but some of that sounds kind of like the premise of the lighthouse <laughs> from 2019. <laughs> like the descent into madness kind of shit you know mm -hmm. yeah but that's just like a lighthouse theme which i love that's i enjoy good. that let's do more creepy lighthouse things i actually didn't enjoy the lighthouse don't come for me but yeah like it's a spooky theme being out there all alone for so long yeah i mean it's 
also I I could imagine, especially with like screaming winds and rain constantly. The yeah. Get, yeah. Get rough. So the last thing I want to talk about, I want to go into with some sensitivity because this case is still fairly new and it is kind of close to where I grew up. When this happened, I was in college and this was something when I say close to me, I did not know this family personally. I did not have any mutual friends with this person. She was older than me. We were in the same county when this happened. I was going to college in Plano, Texas, and she was, she disappeared in Collin County, which was the same county that I was in. And I think she also disappeared from Plano. And the reason that it was so interesting, not interesting in like a good way, but this just completely rocked Dallas, Fort Worth area. She was from Fort Worth. She disappeared in Plano and for years, no sign of this girl her family was all over the news all the time. I was in a Facebook group with a bunch of my friends that was just called Find Christina Morris. And there were groups of volunteers landscaping fields and areas looking for her body or any sign of hers. So it was kind of like a firsthand look at what happens when somebody goes missing because her mom would post in this group about what she was going through and also organizing the searches in these fields and off these highways and, and everything to find her. Christina Morris on August 30th, 2014 disappeared from a mall parking garage after spending an even evening with friends and mall, this mall parking garage, it's a mall, but there are also, it's like a strip. So there are like bars and stuff. So it was like three o'clock in the morning ish when she walked into this parking garage, she walked into this parking garage with this friend. His name was Enrique. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm talking about a lot of this from memory. I have news pulled right. up. But his name was Enrique Orochi. They walked into this parking garage together. And this parking garage footage, you see them together and she was never seen again. Okay. And that was in 2014. And he denied, of course, they, he said, I walked her to her car. They split ways, right? Right. Right, right, yeah. So, of course, everyone starts freaking out, starts searching. Obviously, this is out of character for her, just like in most missing person cases. He gets arrested. They have enough evidence, apparently, to arrest this, this man. Because, I mean, last person seen with her, right? They also pinged his cell phone driving like an hour out from where he actually lives after this. Okay. Right? Not exactly. suspicious at all. Mm -mm. And he got his car fully detailed that night or like the very next morning. Okay. Wow. Yeah. yeah he didn't kill her at all. Right. So they found hair samples in his trunk in 2015 and he basically, he had a 2010 Chevy Camaro and they found her hair in his trunk. And again, he maintained his innocence. His family was maintaining his innocence. He said it probably just got on his sleeve or something because, you know, they were walking together and he closed his trunk. And on October 28th, the trial, he basically was going to trial and he had been scheduled to go to trial November 30th for kidnapping Christina Morris, but not for the murder of Christina Morris because they could only pin him on the kidnapping because there was no body. Right. No idea where this poor girl was, what happened to her. Her family, again, is pleading with his family, with him, with anyone to come forward with any information. So they believed that he used the vacuum to clean out his 2010 Chevy Camaro shortly after he was seen walking with her into the parking garage at the shops at Legacy, which is the mall in Plano. And other hair from her was found in the Camaro's trunk opening on a mat inside the trunk. And then investigators discovered more hairs inside the vacuum cleaner at a Sprint store where he was a manager. So not only did he clean it out, but he used a fucking vacuum cleaner where he worked. And they found wow. her hair in that. Wow. The DNA testing took 12 weeks from there. So, you know, her mom is still looking for her, obviously, at that point, And they're still, you know, every weekend. They believed that he planned to sexually assault her and became angry when she rejected his advances. But he was still maintaining his innocence. They indicted him in March of 2015. Basically, 
they were arguing. They tried to pin it on her boyfriend for a little while because they were arguing over text that night at like 3.50 a.m. and 3.55 a.m. Okay. Basically, though, they didn't find her. Again, she disappeared August 30th of 2014. Her body was found in 2018. Like, not in, and it was found in a field that they had searched over and over and over. And a random crew found her skeletal remains just laying in an open field that they had searched over and over and over. How the fuck did they miss it? That's what they were saying. Like, the biggest thing, like, is how did we miss this? Like, they have no idea. The cops missed it. The volunteers missed it. They had searched that area three times. Like, and they just missed it. And he had just dumped her in a field after killing her. And she was missing for four years. Wow. And he still never fucking confessed. They had him for three years on the kidnapping charges, but she was still missing for that long. And he kept saying, like, I didn't do it. Like, I didn't fucking do it. But of course, they had her hair in his trunk. Like, yeah, of course she fucking did it, dude. Yeah. And the only reason I bring that up is because, like, obviously it's not unsolved and everyone thought it was him, but like, he wouldn't confess and she was still missing. Like, no trace of her. He, she disappeared from that parking garage, and that was that. Nobody ever saw her again until 2018 when her body was found. That's crazy. And when her body was found, I can't even tell you, like, everyone, like, in the DFW area, it was, like, all anybody could talk. Not, like, in a bad way, not gossipy, but it was just, like, oh, my God, they found her. You mm-hmm. know? Like, yeah, it had been years from this initial disappearance, and everyone knew, like, they found Christina, you know? Like it was, it was this relief, but also like watching her mom finally find her daughter. It was a good thing, but her having that, cause she would literally post on Facebook every day and write like a paragraph or sometimes even a full letter to Christina. For Uh, four years? Pretty much. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. And so it was really, obviously really glad she got closure, but it was also like, she didn't have it for four years and there's a lot of people that don't ever get it exactly like super glad that they finally found her because he wasn't gonna fucking say shit no he wasn't gonna ever tell and if he did it would have been probably years out from when she was actually found who knows if he ever would have told yeah because that would have taken his charges from kidnapping to murder right it's just uh... like i get it accidents happen you didn't find her but you searched the place three fucking times who was lazy over there? I don't know. Cause like those volunteers, like they went out on Christmas, Thanksgiving, like yeah. they didn't fucking stop. The, like I'm sure they brought dogs out. They couldn't fucking smell her. It was found by construction workers. So I don't know, but like, <laughs> I don't know because like one thing said they were just found laying there and then the other one, like, I don't know. It was just like in this field in this way <laughs> out from, he drove a while to dump her and it's like, I mean, I'm glad he chose a random field because those are going to be, that's going to be easier to find, you know? Mm-hmm. But, yeah. I just wanted to throw that in there because I actually like kind of experienced that for a couple of years, just kind of being an observer in the community. But yeah. That's sad. But while we're on it, just because it made me think of it, what you witnessed or you didn't witness, you heard a story about someone getting kidnapped from a store for sex trafficking, right? Yeah, when I was in college. Now, granted, everyone on Facebook, um, every mom and dad say all the time their kids were almost sex trafficked. But this actually, there was a girl in a college town that I was in. And I actually, she was in a dressing room. It's it's been a long time since I heard this story. but just the vague. Yeah, and she, they actually grabbed her. Yeah, she actually. They actually her. got her. Well, she they didn't. She fought, and her her mom oh, was with job. her, and her mom fought him too. But yeah, she they she, they fucking nabbed her from a dressing room. Yeah, yeah, that's fucking terrifying to me. Like I, you told me that story, and I literally won't use dressing rooms now. Like I, I'll buy it, I guess, and return it if it doesn't fit. But I won't fucking go in there alone. Now, granted, this was a like desolate mall that nobody ever went to, and like obviously they did because she was there, but it was mm-hmm. not like. 
it was a it was a really good like thinking about it like good area to like hunt if you will but yeah yeah the world's fucking scary man like how many missing persons are that right there are like they're just sex tra- sex trafficked or yeah yeah it's fucking scary mm-hmm. the world's scary yep it is and it's scary like if you have kids like don't be overprotective but also like educate them to be on guard you know like mm-hmm. that's why i check my exits every time i go somewhere <laughs> like you know right exactly well, thank you guys for hanging out with us for this episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Let us know what some of your favorite unsolved mysteries are, you know, like conspiracy theories and true crime stuff. You know, I'm sure it'll come around again eventually. So, yeah, you know, but yeah, thank you guys so much for hanging out with us. And we hope that you have a good start to your year and we are hoping for a much better 2021. Right. Exactly. And until next time, stay creepy.